But it's good to be here, good to be before y'all. Now, I've warned y'all, Tyreek and, and Timmy, I've warned you guys multiple weeks, and you guys are sitting in the spit zone. So um, if one flies out on you, just say he warned me. You know, it's not enough you could... It's like you can't get up and move now, so you're kind of stuck where you are. Listen, Epiphany, it's good to be here, good to be gathered uh, once again around the Word of God, gathered around worshiping Jesus. That's, that's the ultimate goal of us coming every week. I know I sound like a broken record every week saying the same thing, but that is the goal of our church. We are deeply devoted. If you've been here for any amount of time, uh, one of the things you'll quickly pick up about uh, our church is our, our passion and our love for, for Christ. I mean, that's the centrality of Jesus Christ is one of our is one of our core convictions, our core values. You go onto our website right now and look at the five convictions that we have, those things that as a church we'll never move from. At the end of it or somewhere in the middle, you'll see cult, uh, culturally relevant ministry, you'll see conversions, you'll see community, uh, but you will see in their Christ-centeredness, we are passionate. Anybody just love Jesus this morning? Amen. As a church, as a church, that is something that we are, we, we are, uh, we're committed to. Really, all of our core convictions hold on that one. Uh, welcome again, guys, to Epiphany Church. We are a church plant here in the Bed-Stuy section of Brooklyn, deeply committed to this community, deeply committed to the uh, committed to this borough, uh, and we just believe that one of the ways the Lord really impacts a city is by a church, uh, by a church that's thriving, not just one church, but churches that are thriving in that community, and, community. and that is why uh, we believe the best form of evangelism, uh, and we're all about parachurch. Praise God for those that do parachurches and uh, do Christian ministries, but isn't the actual church. We're all about that. Like, we support that in many ways, but you cannot replace the church at all uh, from a, a long centuries and centuries ago, not even not even to 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 talk about the fact that we're in a highly bed side of Brooklyn really is like a hub of African-Americans and in an African-American, predominantly African-American community. The church is the longest standing institution. The church is. And so we are grateful to be a part of uh, a part of that. Just want to recap last week that. Um, we did a prayer walk last week. How many went on the prayer walk with us last week? A few of us. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it was a, a, an amazing time of us being committed to really what Paul said last week, right? Paul, in, in chapter 4 of Colossians, verse 2, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Uh, and as a church, we got to walk the streets and pray. I said we would do a half an hour, but uh, I lied, so we did 40 minutes. I snuck 10 in on y'all. Uh, I knew I was, and I didn't want to tell y'all, but, you know. Um, but seriously, we are, um, we're, we're deeply devoted to praying. Uh, this wasn't any, we didn't have tracks. We weren't inviting people, hey, come to our church. This wasn't about us and an inflation of numbers, but it was purely based on our desire to seek God, plead with Jesus to do something in this neighborhood. And so we walked up, um, up Halsey and, and walked on to the, the school right on Marcy Avenue and lay, literally laid our hands on the fence of the school, prayed for the teachers, prayed for the faculty, prayed for the students. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I mean, some of y'all, Janelle was like in heaven. She was like, there's a picture when she's just like, I'm like, okay, she's, she's clearly at the throne right now. Um, 
But that, that's our passion. We ended up walking and end up at Putnam and was praying for the park there, praying for the kids there that play on. I was praying for the, I mean, kids this big was running around the playground. I'm praying not just for their salvation, but for the salvation of their future spouse. You know, and that's the things that we, we want to see the Lord uh, impact deep generations. Pray, laid our hands on the fence and prayed for the basketball court. It was a nice day, so people are out there playing ball. Um, prayed on on. Tompkins and not Tompkins, Putnam and uh, and and Hancock, heavy drug corner. If you ever walk by there, it's, it's always somebody out on that corner. Uh, they kind of just sit out there. Thirty of us just stood out there and just pleaded with the Lord to do something on that corner. That's the impact of a prayer walk. So if you're like, well, prayer walk, that's that's not in the Bible, and, and yeah, the term isn't, but prayer is in the Bible. And so we just aimlessly walked and prayed for things, and it was a, a good, a good, good, good time. Last thing I, I want to just recap and mention is yesterday we got to engage and talk with uh, several teens in the area here in Bed-Stuy, and uh, a partnership with, that we have with Young Life. We, uh, we took them out to lunch, about six kids, and just were, were hungry, not, yeah, they were physically hungry, but, um, and they ate too, boy. Um, I was looking at that bill going, man, what did I get myself into? Um, but no, we had, a, we had a really good time and a great, great conversation, just building relationships with young people. Never underestimate the power of a young mind um, and, and, and your investment into the next generation. I mean, we about to be old and out of here. There's a whole nother generation that's coming up. Um, and we want to make sure that we are, we are deeply, you know, praying and talking and investing our time into them. So we got a good time, not just myself, but Ed went along and Janelle went along. And, uh, so it was, it was just a great time. Uh, so we we'll, we're going to do more like that. If you have teens, if you know of teens in the area and we're you know, as we do more with the teens, 13 to 19, we ask that you guys um, commit yourself, man. If, if you know of a team, bring them, ask them to come, tell them to come. Uh, it's a good time and a good way to engage them. All right, book of Colossians. Whatever you have that contains the word, please open it up. Physical copies, phones, um, whatever you have. Uh, it is bittersweet, though, guys. This is the last week that we are in the book of Colossians. I know y'all cracked on me and joked that we have been in it forever. Um, we, it's only been since October. Just want to, you know, let y'all know it has not been forever. Uh, but it, it does feel like we we take seriously the word here. We, we really want to go. We don't just it's not fluff for us. We want to go through what the word says. So when we say we've been going through Colossians, uh, we started in Colossians 1 in October, and we are now in Colossians 4, ending up the last few verses. And um, it's, been, it's been a fruitful time. You know, this is one of those books, one of the, the more, all of the books of the Bible point to Jesus. But this is one of the more just in-your-face, explicit books that really uh, clearly define for us uh, Jesus because I mean, simply because Paul is writing this letter to defend the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so this uh, this series has been been really good for us. Um, But I want you guys I do want you guys to be uh, writing down those notes that Gabe talked about and putting them in the basket for the Bride of Christ series. I know some of you have already came to me and asked me questions about not just our church. I mean, if you have those questions, please ask them about about the church in general the universal church, all believers, about the local church, um, you know, your church experience, you know, you may have questions. We may do diff- things differently here. 
uh, please ask those questions. We'd love to answer them. This is clearly bothering me. All right, Colossians chapter 4, verse number, uh, verse number 7 through 18 is where we'll be. Y'all know how we'll do. I'll, I'll read, I'll announce my theme or topic, and then I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll just jump in. All right, verse number 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you everything that has taken place here. Here talking about prison. Uh, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Verse 11, and Jesus, who was called justice. These are the only men of the of the circumcision among the fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the work in the will of God. For I bear him witness that. He has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you and does Demis. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see to it that, the, that, the, that you also read the letter from Laodicea and say to Archippus, See to it that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be to you. I'm going to preach from the topic entitled, A Community Devoted to the Mission. A Community Devoted to the Mission. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this morning we, um, we, we come to be and in, in receive our marching orders as a church from your word, not just individualistically. It's easy for us to read the Bible and try to figure out how to apply it uh, to our individual lives. And yes, and amen, we should do that. But Lord, we also come collectively to hear what it is that you would say to the church, the corporate body. Would you meet us this morning? Pray that we wouldn't um, gather ourselves around opinion or around fluff, but that we would deeply be engaged into your word. Let us not disconnect as we hear a bunch of names, names that we may not know. We pray that this morning we wouldn't say, well, this is just one of those passages that I can just uh, check out on. But Father, help us to be dialed in. Every single scripture is breathed out from you. That's including a bunch of names. All of it's breathed out by you. So Father, we pray that you would meet us today and speak to us today from this final greeting in Paul's letter. Thank you for what you've done through this book as, as we've dialed in and got into your word. Thank you for how, how you've impacted our lives and uh, really made us stronger and, and deeper believers in you. And we pray this morning that, uh, that, that we would search and find you in your, in your text this morning. Father, meet us. It's in Christ's name we give glory. Amen. A, com a community devoted to the mission. Mark Stepanowski. Anybody know that name? Some people, all right. Nate Newton, Larry Allen, Eric Williams, Jay Novacek, 
Daryl Moose Johnson, somebody that's a sports fan probably picked up these names already. But for most of the room, I would say 90 to 95 percent of the room, you're probably like, I have no clue who those names, th those names are that you just mentioned. And that's that's fine. That's why I just read them out and didn't do any intro, just jumped right in. Th these guys were known. Their nicknames was the Great Wall of Dallas, because in the early 90s, this was the offensive line for the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, Super Bowl, over more than one Super Bowl in the 90s. America's team, that was the lineman. Many of us don't know their names, though. But if I say Emmitt Smith, you'll be like, okay, I know him. He was the running back during the 90s, right? He graduated from the University of Florida. He was first-round draft pick in 1990. Uh, still to this day holds the NFL career rushing record, 18,355 yards is what, it, I mean, but this line that he had, I mean, my grandmother who, who just turned 86 this week could have ran for 18,000 yards behind this line. This, this was the, they were the biggest dudes, uh, but they were a solid group of people. But, but all of us know Emmett. That's how we, now some of you may know him from Dancing with the Stars, but, but way before he was dancing with the stars, he, he was on the football field. And, and the beautiful thing about Emmitt Smith is that he wasn't like, a, a, he wasn't the fastest running back. There's a lot of arguments between him and Barry Sanders and who's the best running back uh, of that time. But Emmitt wasn't the fastest. He wasn't the biggest. He wasn't, it wasn't that he was the best running back. He just had an amazing line. And so all of us know that name, but we don't know the names of the people that blocked for him. That is what we get today in our text. All of us know Paul. We've heard Paul. I've talked about Paul. I've said Paul's name 10,000 times as, we, as we've walked through this book. Uh, but the names that are mentioned to us this morning are the, are the Great Wall of Dallas. They're the men that kept, they're the men we would not even have this letter to read this morning if there wasn't at least for the first two that are mentioned. We wouldn't even have the letter. Paul made some great thoughts and, and some inspired, so the inspired word as he's sitting in prison. This letter would have died in prison if it wasn't for the men that were named in this book. And so what we do is we put our brains on cruise control when we get to genealogies or final greetings. Like we, we see final greetings and we're like, boom, 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 names. All right, I'm going to skip to the next book and there's nothing there. Our final greetings, Paul's just given some greetings. There's really nothing there. I got the meat of the, of the book in the first three chapters, so I don't need chapter four. But I would argue, let me assure you this morning, that the names that are listed in this book are absolutely important for us this morning. Absolutely important. And so I'd like to walk through these names and ask you not to, to check out. Verse number seven. Tychicus will tell you all about, the act all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. The first name that Paul gives us this morning is Tychicus. Now, this is a new name for us. We have not seen it in the book of Colossians. We have not seen this name yet, but he is not new to the scriptures. Five times in the New Testament, Tychicus is talked about. He's named two of those times in Ephesians and in this book. He's not just named, but he's called a dear brother and a fellow servant. So Tychicus is an absolutely important person. Again, he must have been trustworthy because he would have he carried this letter from Paul's prison all the way over 100 miles to the town of Colossia to give them this letter. 
By the way, he would have known that this letter was authoritative and the word from the Lord. How do I know that? Because in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, what I write you is, is, he says, what I write you is a command of the Lord. So early on, the early, the early church, the first church would have known that Paul's letters were authoritative from the beginning. And so when he's carrying this letter, Tychicus is carrying this letter, he knows that this is, this is the word of God. He must have been trustworthy in order to carry this letter. But he was not just the errand boy. He wasn't just Paul's flunky that he, Paul would say, go, go, go send this letter. No, no, no. The scriptures call him a dear brother, a faithful brother. Through thick and thin, Tychicus would have been involved in Paul's life. Through thick and thin. And so many commentators say that he would have been a part of Paul's life when Paul was in Ephesus in Acts 19 and the great riot. I don't know if you guys know this story, but Paul's preaching the gospel for two years in in Ephesus. And I mean, people are getting saved left and right. They're bringing together their sorcery books and burning them in the middle of the city because of Paul's gospel. Tychicus would have been there for that. Later on, you see that evil businesses come crashing down. These men that were making these shrines for these false gods, they no longer could make money because people were getting saved. First of all, like, that's amazing to me. That is what the church should be in the community. Our first Bible study in September 6th last year, our first Bible study, I read, with the permission of my wife, I read six um, strip clubs here in Bed-Stuy, six of them. And I said, man, what would it be like if our church was so faithful to the gospel that every one of those strip clubs begin to start to come down? The men that were going there to put dollars in a G-string became elders in the church. Like, what would that look like? And so Paul preached the gospel so passionately in Ephesus that we start to see that the whole city is rocked. So a riot breaks out. Tychicus would have been there. He would have been a part of Paul's journey, uh, his, his missionary journeys. When he went to different places, Tychicus would have been there. He would have been there when Paul was, was shipwrecked and hungry and cold and bitten by snakes and beaten countless of times. Let me just tell you, if you're beaten countless, you can't even remember how many times you got beat. You really got beat. Tychicus would have been there. When, when Paul was before these great kings and before these great governors, Tychicus would have been there. So Tychicus is not just the, the guy that went and carried the letter, but he's a, he's a dear brother. As Paul is in prison, Tychicus is there with him. He's there to support him. He's there to encourage him. And he's there to take this letter for him. Let, let me just say to you, all of us in this room need a Tychicus in our life. All of us in this room need that one person in our life that is ride or die through thick and thin. They're with you. Now, I'm not saying that person that condones you when you're wrong, but that person, even when you're wrong, like you need to have somebody in your life that has full access to your life, that no matter what it is that you go through, if you're off, if you're left, they have full access to talk reckless to you. I mean, that person that will offend you and not care that they offended you. We all need that one person. See, some of us get in trouble in our lives because we don't have that. We don't have a Tychicus. We have some people that we'll, we'll go to when we know that that person will condone us, will pat us in what we are. No, you need somebody to say, you're wrong. You need to knock it off and not care how you feel after they say that. That's what we need in our lives. And that's what Paul that's what Paul was. You know, when, when you give somebody your phone, 
and you ask them to, to look at a picture, y'all know what we're thinking. Do not swipe white like, to the right. Don't swipe to the left. Look at the picture I showed you and don't. You need the person in your life that literally can take your phone. See, if you, if you give your phone to somebody, I'm not just saying anybody, but a friend, and in the moment you give your phone to your friend, if you're thinking to yourself, oh my God, I hope they don't see that. Like, that's when you know you don't have that person in your life. You need that person. You can give that phone and feel no conviction. Swipe. Look. But what we do is read. What we do is we say, man, I don't want, I don't want you in my business. The question I would have is what business that do you have that somebody can't come into your life? There's not a moment when I, well, some of you, but when I give my phone to my wife, there, I don't have that feeling of, oh, my God, I hope she doesn't see that. All of us need that person in our life. Yes, of course, it should be your husband or your wife, but you need somebody else into your life that can, I mean, talk crazy to you. And, and that's what Paul, that's what Paul was. He was ride or die. I'm serious when I say that, by the way. That's what Paul was. But why was Tychicus sent? Again, he wasn't just sent to give this letter. Look at what verse number eight says. It says, not verse eight, verse number seven. Yeah, verse eight. I'm sorry. I sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Why is this important? Because Paul is in prison. That is the one of the most discouraging places to be. Yet Paul is sending Tychicus to encourage a church while he's in discouragement. He's in the midst of in, in a prison, a Roman jail, probably with a bunch of people chained to a wall. Yet he seems to lose sight of the fact that of his own personal discouragement. And all he's thinking about is the encouragement of the church. By the way, a church that he's never seen. He hasn't laid eyes on the Colossians yet. He didn't even plant the church in Colossia. We're going to see later on that Epaphras planted the church in Colossia. Paul doesn't even know these people. All he's concerned, he says they're family. This is the body of Christ. Go encourage them. Of course, encourage them with, with what's happening here. Clearly some great things, and we'll see that in a little bit. But there's some great things that were happening in prison. I told you guys last week, Paul is the dude that could be chained to a wall. The entire jail cell gets saved. Everybody in the room with him, including the guards outside, gets saved. See, that's, that's the power in Paul's ministry. He didn't complain when he was in jail. He said, well, this is an opportunity. He made the jail a pulpit for. This is an opportunity for me to share the gospel. And so he tells Tychicus, go take this letter, but don't just take the letter. I want you to take the letter, but also encourage them with what's happening here. Encourage them with what's going on. It's almost like Paul's encouragement happens when someone else is encouraged. See, we don't, that's not how we think. When I go to a restaurant, I mean a, a good restaurant, my joy is not complete after I finish a good meal. You know when my joy is complete? When I call somebody else and say, yo, you got to try that restaurant. When they go to the restaurant, then I'm like, yeah, my joy is complete then. That's, it's almost like that's what Paul is thinking. Like his joy isn't complete because the jail was saved. His joy is complete when somebody else is encouraged because the, because the jail was saved. That's what we need to get. First, uh, First Timothy chapter four, verse 16. Don't turn there. It says, take heed unto yourself and unto your doctrine, continuing them both. For in doing so, you'll save both yourself and them that hear you. It's almost like you, you ever had to encourage somebody else when you were discouraged? Like you ever had to help somebody through their depression and you secretly were depressed? Like in your heart, you're like, how am I helping somebody else when I'm dealing with the same thing? 
Paul is looking for, he says, send Tychicus, take that letter, but also have him encourage the church while I'm still sitting in, I'm still, at the end he says, remember my chains. He's clearly still in prison. Yet he seems to lose sight of the fact. But Tychicus is not traveling alone. He's not alone. Tychicus has a companion walking with him to the, to the, to the, Colossia, to the church of Colossia. Now, the person that's walking with him rocks me. I literally, for two days, could not get past the next person. Literally, I had to close my Bible and say, I'm done for the day. I could not get past, and I'll tell you why. Let's read. Verse number 9. And with him, talking about with Tychicus, Onesimus, a faithful brother, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you everything that has taken place place here. So the next person that Paul introduces us to is another name that we haven't seen in this book, Onesimus. Well, who is Onesimus? This is the first time we're introduced to this guy. Who is this guy? Remember a couple of weeks ago when I talked about husbands and wives and children and parents, and I talked about masters and slave owners. Of course, it's completely different than what we think in terms of slavery here in America. This, was a, this wasn't based on ethnic. You weren't a slave because of your ethnicity. You could literally put yourself into slavery and buy yourself out of slavery. It was almost employee to employer. Onesimus was a runaway slave. The book of Philemon at the end of the New Testament, the entire book, it's one chapter, is devoted to talking about receiving Onesimus when he comes back. That's what it's talking about. So Onesimus is, Onesimus is on the run. But here's the crazy part. He wasn't a believer when he, he, when he was on the run. He's a fugitive. By the way, that's illegal in Rome. He's on the run. He hears the gospel. Paul takes him in and disciples him, sends him back to the church. Now, he would, Colossia would have been familiar with him because many commentators believe that he was from, Onesimus was from Laodicea. Stay with me. Laodicea was a town right next to Colossia. And so when, when we think about this, the letter that we are reading, the letter that we've been reading through since October was not just handed to the Colossian church by Tychicus, which was a faithful brother, which was there with Paul through thick and thin, but a fugitive. Somebody that is illegally on the run is somebody that the scriptures tell us is taking this authoritative letter. So there would have been some trust there with him as well. In the book of Philemon, it tells us, this is what it says about Onesimus. It says, this is what Paul says, formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed he is useful to me. See, only the gospel can take somebody that is useless and take them and make them useful, not just to Paul, but useful to the kingdom. Like, I don't care what you came in here. Like, he's a runaway slave, illegally on the run. Here's the gospel and is saved. I don't care what baggage you brought into this room. I don't care what, you, what past history you have, what secrets you haven't told anybody. The cross is powerful enough to save you and use you. Like, make you, take you from being useless to being useful in the kingdom of God. That is what Onesimus was. Like, that is, that is powerful. That is powerful to me. He's useless. Like, I don't, I don't, I want you guys to sit on that. He's useless. I don't know how many of you walked in here saying, man, that's what I feel like. I feel like, yeah, like I have some things I can contribute. For the most part, I'm useless to, to the kingdom. I'm useless to God. There's no way he could use me. Based on my past, there's no way he can use me. He used Onesimus. 
this reminds me of a story that I heard about uh, this guy. He was an auctioner, and he was about to auction off this, this violin. The violin was beat up. It was dusty. The strings was all loose and messed up. And he puts it on auction. Even the auctioner was like, man, this ain't gonna, isn't going to go for much money. And he was right. Puts it on auction. They start out at a penny. It went for $3. A guy in the back says, I'm going to buy it. $3. This, this is a true story. $3. He buys this beat up violin. He gets on the stage and said, can I play it before I leave? The auctioner says, sure, go ahead and play it. The guy tightens the strings. He dusts off the violin and he starts to play it. Nobody knew that this guy was masterly skillful at playing the violin. He plays it and makes the most beautiful music and then says, I want to donate it back to you. The auctioner puts it back on auction and it sells for over $3,000. What changed with the violin? All he did was tighten the strings and dust it off. Nothing else changed. What made it useful, what made it absolutely critical that it goes for more money is the fact that it was in the hands of a master skillful player. That is what the gospel is. The gospel is not you bring anything great to the table. You're the shiny violin. No, no, no. You're the beat up violin with the strings all loose that has dust all over it. But when you're in the master's hand, that's what brings it use. That's what makes it useful. That's why it now could go for over three thousand dollars. Had nothing to do with the performance of the actual violin. But who was holding the violin? That is what our lives is. And so Onesimus is that person beat up. He's useless. That's what I mean. When the Bible says you're useless, you're probably useless. But then he says, but no, 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 no. but he's useful to me. He's useful to the kingdom. And so some of you may may be thinking or maybe you're not even thinking about you. Maybe you're thinking about that person that you've been praying for. And you're like, it's no way the Lord can save them. Like, come on. Like, can we be honest in here? There's that person that we know right now that that person in our mind is too far for the Lord to save. Onesimus got saved and not just saved. He didn't just hear the gospel and then do nothing. They put him to work. Can you imagine him coming back to the church, the church knowing that he's a runaway slave? Can you imagine him coming to the door with Paul's letter? Like that's good. Paul would have identified with this. Paul himself was a persecutor of the church. I mean, Acts shows that he gets knocked off a horse literally on Damascus Road with documents in his hand to collect Christians, to persecute Christians. The Lord saves him. We get 75 percent of the New Testament because the Lord saved somebody that was anti the church, someone who did not like Christ. And then what does Christ say? Paul, Saul of Tarsus, why are you persecuting me? Which, by the way, rocks me because Jesus himself in that moment wasn't being persecuted. His church was. But even though his church was being persecuted, Jesus looked at that as a personal offense to himself. He knocks him off the horse, saves him. And so Paul, when he sees Onesimus, he would have said, yeah, yeah, okay. I can see how the Lord saved him because he saved me. Let's not be so, let's not share the gospel from a privileged position. Share the gospel like we like we really earned it. Like we know it's by grace and by faith. We get that. But we operate as though, no, I work for this. I'm privileged. Let's not share the gospel from that type of place. And so these men are both saved, Tychicus and Onesimus. And now they're carrying this letter to the church at Colossae. Here's the beauty in the text. This is the part when I said I couldn't run past the text for two days. Here's the part that I couldn't run past. Both men, Tychicus, who was 
Paul's boy through thick and thin and Onesimus are both described with the same description. Both of them are called faithful and beloved. Like both, like Onesimus is called faithful. Like that rocked me. How in the world do you take a fugitive, a runaway slave, and put the description faithful on them? How do you, only the gospel can give you labels that you can't live up to. Like earlier in this chapter, Paul says, early in this chapter, in chapter one, Paul says, he talks about how the Colossian church, which is you in this room today that have trusted Jesus, he puts a description on them. He calls them holy and blameless. Only the gospel can you be called holy, holy, uh, holy and blameless. Like think of you. Like think of the word blameless. Think of the word spotless and then think of you. But that is what we get in the gospel. Nisimus can be called faithful, although let's be honest, he wasn't faithful because he ran from his master. He was, he was illegally on the run, yet he's called faithful and he's called a dear, beloved brother. That is what we'll get when we stand before God based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You will hear the words blameless and spotless. Like, that's not based on your performance. You're like that. Don't base that on anything that you've brought to the table. You're purely called home. Uh, why do I keep saying that? You're clearly called holy and blameless based on the righteousness of somebody else. When we were with the young people yesterday, I'm going to run past this, but I, I, I got stuck here for two days. So y'all got to let me talk through it. When, when, when we were with the young people yesterday, you know, we, we started talking about different aspects and different things, different religion and just a whole bunch of stuff. Great conversation. One of the guys says, well, where does faith come from in Christianity? Like, I feel, this is what he says. I feel like, like if you have faith in a, that you're going to take a test and you're going to get 100 on the test, and I have faith in that, but I don't get 100, what happens there? Well, I, I was like, well, let me tell you how, how the gospel works. Our faith doesn't rely on us getting 100. See, our faith relies that we'll get the zero and that Jesus got the 100. So our faith says, I'm sitting here taking the same test that Jesus is taking, and he's sitting next to me. We're both taking the same test. I flunk the test. I don't get a 50. I don't get a 40. I get a fat zero with the, you know, when they put the red on it. I get a fat zero on the test, and my neighbor, which is Christ, gets 100. We walk, we both walk up to the teacher, and Jesus switches the test. And so now I give the test to the teacher, and I have the 100. And Jesus has the zero. That's what the gospel is. On the cross, Jesus took what you should have taken. And we get to stand before God. 33 years of perfection is what Jesus lived. We get to stand and be counted as though we lived that. That is what the gospel is. And so Onesimus is walking this letter. He gets this term placed on him, faithful and beloved. And he's not. It's the gospel. It's the gospel that's able to do that. Let me keep going. Verses number 10. Let's go verse 10 through 14. It says, uh, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. So Aristarchus is a prisoner with Paul. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been comforted, they, were, they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, that's who planted the church. 
Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf with his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke four, uh, verse number 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, and so does Demas. We just got, within those few verses, six names, six people, back-to-back, Paul just names six different people. When I started to get into to some of this Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, it's like, all right, is he just, like, giving shout-outs to, like, extended family? Like, what's, what's happening? Six names, Paul, six names Paul just pops off one after another. The beauty that I want to point out within those six names is three of them. That I want to show you the diversity within the people that are collectively making up the church. Three of those names are Gentiles. Three of those names are Jews. They're literally spit, split on ethnicity, 50 and 50. That is what the church should look like, especially if you live in a diverse community. If we have no business being in a diverse community, all with one ethnicity in the church. Not if we have ethnicities, different ethnicities within our culture, within our community. Paul is clearly showing us that 50 and 50, they have Jews and Gentiles. By the way, that's not easy. Like, that's a messy process. Jews and Gentiles did not get along. It was like oil and vinegar. Jews would have been considered God's chosen ones, God's chosen people. Gentiles were grafted in. And so they would have, that, that didn't always work well. In fact, even Paul had to rebuke Peter for showing hypocrisy between ethnicities. Y'all remember the story in Galatians 2 when, when Peter is with, uh, by, he's engaging with the Gentiles and then other Jews come and Peter pulls back from hanging with the Gentiles to hang with Jews. What does Paul do? Paul rebukes him. But when he rebuked him, he said it's a gospel issue. Verse 14 of Galatians 2 says, when, this is what Paul says, when I noticed that their conduct was out of step with the gospel. In other words, racial issues, especially within the church, is not just an ethic or moral issue. Paul says it's a gospel issue. Us not being able to get along, talk about our, our differences within ethnicities, Talk about that stuff. And then being community is a gospel issue is what Paul is saying to us. But Paul is modeling for us what it looks like. He says three of them are Jews. Three of them are Gentiles. I mean, it says it here. It says that they are. It says that these men, the only ones of the circumcision. That means three of them. The first three he just named were was Jews and the rest of them were not. And so if we're going to be a church that is passionate about being a community that's serious about mission, we have to be intentional on, on engaging different ethnicities within our church. I mean, intentional about one of the easiest ways, I joke around about this all the time, one of the easiest ways to learn someone else's culture is by getting in the kitchen with them. I'm serious. You get in the kitchen with somebody else, I'll show you how to make some, some collard greens and macaroni and cheese you know, you show me how to make what, what it is that you make. There's nothing else that binds us and bonds us together like sitting down. Let's cook together. That's so important to community. So we must be serious about different ethnicities. Let me point out somebody else. When he says Mark here, when he mentions Mark in the text, he also, just mentioning Mark, also shows us that we shouldn't hold grudges within the church. 
Let me tell you why. Mark, earlier in his life, went on a missionary journey with Paul. You can read this in Acts, so I don't have time to go through it. In Acts, Barnabas and Paul go on a journey. They take Mark, also known as John Mark. They take him on this journey. Something happened that we don't know what happened, but something happened to where Mark ends up leaving them and going back to Jerusalem. Clearly, Paul wasn't happy about that because later on, they go on their second missionary journey and Paul and Barnabas says to Paul, let's take Mark. And Paul says, no, we're not taking Mark. Twelve years later, we get this book, the Colossian, the, the book to the Colossian church. And Paul clearly says that Mark is one of the people that's ministering to him. And he says, welcome him. So clearly the grudge that they had was dissolved. That's important for us because all of us in this room, I don't know about you, but I know how to hold a grudge. See, there we go. I got an amen. We know how to hold grudges. We won't, I mean, we know how to give you the silent treatment like nobody's business. We'll walk right by you if you offend us. Paul was, he clearly was offended because he said, no, I'm not bringing him on no more trips. No more journeys does he go on with me. He deserted us on the first one. Yet, 12 years later, he's like, man, he's meant, and then he calls him in the book of Philemon, he calls him a fellow servant. He's a fellow worker with him. And so Mark isn't just some guy, he squashed the beef. Second Timothy chapter four, verse number 11 says, get Mark and bring him for he is very useful to me for ministry. The same Mark that deserted him, the same Mark that he was mad at, that he said, no, don't bring him, is the Mark that he says, bring him now because he's useful. Bring him now because the beef has been squashed. Not only that, he tells the Colossian church, receive him, welcome him. And he's one of the people in prison that is ministering to me. Let's if we're really going to pursue this thing, man, we have, to, we have to start breaking down. Some of you in here may have some, some heads that you've bunted against. We have, to, we have to destroy that stuff because that's the stuff that stops us from really pursuing real community. Let me quickly talk about Epaphras. He's mentioned in verse number 12. Again, Epaphras is a guy that, that hears the gospel. He doesn't just, I mean, he hears it to a way, to a point where he goes to plant this church. He starts this church and the other two churches. So three churches he starts. Hierapolis, he starts, I feel this is very academic this morning. Hierapolis, he starts the church at Laodicea, and he starts the church at Colossia. This is, this is why it's important for us to share the gospel. I mean, this guy hears the gospel and starts three churches. Yet, most of us in this room haven't shared the gospel with anybody. All week, all year, all month, we haven't shared the gospel. And you never know who the Lord will use in a crazy way. Epaphras is called a slave or a servant. Like, look at the text. Look at what it says in verse number 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ. So, so Epaphras being the lead pastor, the, the planter, whatever you want to call him, the lead apostle, whatever you want to call him, he's considered a servant. That's what leadership is. Leadership is servant. Leader. Leadership is not a call to be a dictator. But leadership is a call to serve. That is my one role as the lead pastor of this church is to serve this church, not to be served. It's not to be served. Let's keep going. Luke, uh, Luke is mentioned. Verse number 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you and so does Demis. I, I just briefly want to talk about Luke really quickly. You guys may know Luke. He wrote the book of Luke and he also wrote the book of Acts. This is where we get introduced to him as a physician, as a doctor, which, by the way, shows that this church wasn't ethnically diverse only, but socioeconomically they were diverse. How do you have a doctor in the church 
and you have a runaway slave. <laughs> and they're in community. See, that's crazy to me. And that, that's so appropriate for the culture, the, the bed style. That's so appropriate. Only here do you have a million dollar plus homes and project buildings right across the street. Like, we got to be in community now. We share the same coffee shops, the same gyms. We go into the same places, the same grocery stores we shop in. See, when I was a kid, you'd have to go across the, the tracks. You don't even got to do that anymore. We have to be in community, not just and diverse, not just ethnically, but also socioeconomically as well. Let me run through a few more names, and then we'll, we'll, we'll raise up out of here. Verse 15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. I, I have to mention the importance of Paul highlighting that a female has contributed to the church. See, it's so, it's so easy for us to look back and be like, man, it's all men should be running this thing. But Paul just mentioned the same Paul that said, wives, submit to your husbands. The same one that many people read that verse and say, oh, man, he, he's sexist, man. The same Paul just mentioned that Nympha is running a church out of her house. Like, there's no way you can read that and say women should be barefooted at, and at a home pregnant. That's what they should be doing. It's no way you can read that and feel like that. But we have to read that. Now, we're complementarians. We believe that men and women are equally valued before the Lord, but we're different. We went through that, and I don't have to go through that again. We're different, and we'll talk about that more. I really want to hit on the role of women and the role of men within the corporate body. I'm going to hit on that when we go through the Bride of Christ series. Women are important. Even Jesus Christ, the, the Christ, the King, found it necessary to be sustained. Read Luke chapter 8, the first few verses of Luke 8. The first few verses of Luke 8 shows that Jesus, his ministry and the disciples were sustained by a group of women. Now, this is Jesus that could have blinked his eyes and had food everywhere, had new clothes on all the time. But this Jesus became vulnerable enough to live off the means of females, of women. Don't tell me that females don't have a place. Don't tell me that. Not when Paul mentions them. Not when Jesus, that doesn't even need to be sustained, finds himself sustained by women. Don't, you, can't, you can't tell me that. Let's finish this thing up because I'm running way out of time. Verse 16. And when this letter is read among you, have it also read into the church of the Laodiceans. Let me just quickly say, and I'm not going to spend time here. Notice that the, the letters in the New Testament were supposed to be circulated within the churches. This is, this is why it's important for us to go through letters. This is why we went through the book of Colossians. Why? Because the letters are meant to be circulated and read in a congregational setting. The letters are supposed to be read. It then goes on to say, and you also read the letter from the Laodiceans. We don't know where that letter is. Some will speculate and say that's Ephesians because in the book of Ephesians, Paul doesn't, he doesn't clearly address that this is to the Ephesians. So some people, I don't want to get dogmatic with this. So I don't, we don't know where that letter is. But wherever that, if it's not a part of this, it's not authoritative. This is the only authoritative book. Let me keep going. And say to Archippus, see that you have fulfilled the ministry that you have received from the Lord. I, Paul, write this letter with my own hand. Remember my chains. I love the last four, four words of this letter. This is a beautiful way to end it. Grace be with you. Paul was so passionate. He started many of his letters talking about grace. He ends this letter talking about grace. 
Why is that important? Because the Christian life is one to be lived fully under grace. Like salvation completely depends on it being grace. It doesn't depend on your work. And so Paul's saying, grace be to you. What he's really saying is live your life under this grace. Don't believe in, in, in by faith alone, in grace alone, in Christ alone, and then move to works. Don't move to legalism. Don't move to, I have to follow this list of things in order to be sanctified. I know I can be saved this way, but I have to grow this way. No, the same way you're saved is the same way you grow, through the gospel. We don't run past that. We don't move past that. That's why we preach it here so passionately on a consistent basis. Grace literally means that you got something you did not deserve. Do you realize that that's what salvation is? You are receiving salvation and you don't deserve salvation. You know what we deserve? We deserve to hang on the cross just like Jesus did. He deserved to walk free. Yet in the gospel, the innocent is condemned and the guilty walk free. The gospel is the only place where where, where the hero dies for the villain. No other place do we see that. And that's what grace is. Many of you in here, uh, you'll know that you'll understand grace based on how you interact with your own personal sin and how you interact with the sin of others. How you respond to sin tells a lot about your understanding of grace. Do you, re- do you hide your sin? Do you try to cover your sin so nobody knows? That's a person that doesn't understand grace. Do, do you, when someone else tells you and confesses sin to you, do you condemn them? That's a person that doesn't understand grace. And so we must be people that are, our lives are lived under grace. And so Paul lays out a bunch of names for us today. My hope and prayer is that you can identify with it. Maybe you identify with Onesimus being useless. Maybe you are the faithful one. Whatever, the, whatever, bro, whatever spectrum we're on this morning, the gospel finds us. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful this morning that we could hear from you today, even in a final greeting. You list out a bunch of names, but within the names, you, you give us your gospel. You give us the, the pureness of your word. We pray that we would always be hungry for it. We pray that we would never move away from your word and try to move to other things that are more cool and more trendy, more culturally relevant. Nothing's more relevant than the word. The word of God is the only thing that has stood the test of time. Father, let us not walk out of here and say, intellectually, I got that, but there's no heart impact. I pray that we would seek to apply Seek to be doers of the word, not just hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Father, help us this morning to be a community. As we talked about a community that is devoted to the mission, pray that we would be devoted to the mission, but many of us, devotion to the mission may be something as simple as repenting to another brother of an offense or holding a grudge against somebody else. These are things that we can't even get to mission because we're still hindered by our own personal struggles. Let us confess them this morning. It's in Christ's name we give glory. Amen.